Hello and welcome to Murder Analyzed. I'm Christina Moore. Now today's case is the case of William MacDonald, aka the Sydney Mutilator. His crime span in Sydney was between um, 1961 and 1963, so an older case. Uh, his crimes were to, um, I think he killed four people through stabbing and mutilation in Sydney, but he also killed one person in Brisbane um, by strangulation. That was actually his first uh, murder in Australia. So I think the best place to start with this case is to go right back to the beginning, right back so you can sort of understand more about why he did what he did. So let's start with his childhood. So William MacDonald had had a few aliases throughout the years. But he was actually born um, as Alan um, Gainsborough. So that was his birth name. But for the sake of this video, we're going to call him by what he was charged with and subsequently his name by as William MacDonald. All right. So William MacDonald was born in Liverpool in June um, 1924. He was second of three children. Um, he had a mother and father, both worked. There was poverty in the family, but then there was a lot of poverty in 1924, around that time, um, for a lot of people. Um, William was known as a child to be quite distant. He didn't crave human attention. He had no friends. Um, he didn't sort of mix well with anybody. Um, he was quite close to his mother and... Um, I don't really think he was that close to his brothers. He had one older and one younger, but I don't think he was because he didn't really need that sort of interaction, even from that young age. So as he got a little bit older, and, and the details of this case <coughs> from his early childhood are quite limited. Um, so his, his, it is said that his mother used to have to call the police on many occasions when... He was young. Now, that young could mean pre-teens or, you know, when he was at 9, 10, 11. <clears throat> but he would go out of the house at late at night or at night and just wander the streets of Liverpool. So on many occasions, his mother had to call the police to find him and bring him back. So he was classed, I suppose, as quite an odd child. When he was in his teens, though, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And um, <clears throat> in them days... There wasn't much treatment for, for schizophrenia at that age. So I think they, the parents and his siblings tried to do their, their best for him. So he's now been diagnosed with schizophrenia and he's, he's, he's making do, he's getting by as best he could. When he was 19 in 1943, he was um, called into the army. <coughs> Excuse me. So he... Um, was then transferred to Lancashire. So he's, he's in this army, it must have been very difficult for someone with that sort of mental illness to handle it. But on some other, the other side to that, some people with them sort of mental illnesses find that structure quite good. They know what time they're going to do this, that and the other, and it can be quite good for them. But unfortunately for William, um, a corporal 
raped and um, abused him in an air raid shelter. Um, it is sort of thought that this was his first ever sexual encounter. Don't forget, we've just said that he's this person that doesn't crave human uh, affection or attention. So to be raped um, by someone also who has a mental illness <clears throat> and also where he is um, in the army, which is where he is not at that level. So he's then raped by a man which is more powerful than him. He's more... Um, in control of him and also this corporal also threatened him with death if he told anybody so subsequently he then came out of the army and went back home by the time he got back home he was showing um, some very strange um, behavior he was now at this point openly homosexual he was soliciting people in toilets. He was soliciting people in the pubs and stuff. So these days, we wouldn't think much of that. But in 1947, when this was going on, when he'd come out of the army and gone home in this uh, in Liverpool, where you had quite conservative society, this sort of behaviour just wasn't acceptable. It just wasn't accepted. Plus, it was also illegal in them days to be an open homosexual. You know, people hid it. They hid it for a reason, because you're going to be put in prison for that. So his behaviour caused then people to ridicule him and embarrass him. Again, must have been affecting his mental health. So... All this sort of behaviour had started and it was getting worse and worse. Now, the thing is with people with schizophrenia is that they do have episodes where they will do strange things or what we would call strange things. They do do that. But for, I think, for William and William's family, this was now getting to a point where they couldn't handle it. And, you know, also the threat of him being put in prison for this, for solicitation, because it a criminal in them days, so it was under Sexual Offences Act, um, and there was buggery and everything that they would um, charge you with, with this. So, and that law actually, if we want to talk about the law, didn't change in the UK under our laws until 1967. And even then, you know, in them amendments that were made then, it had to be with consensual adults, you had to be over 21, and it had to be in a private place because people didn't want to see that out on the streets. So there was a lot going on for William in 1947, a lot going on for his family. He was, um, he did tell a psychiatrist at that point that this persecution that he felt persecuted by people around him, and if it was giving him illusions and and he was having strange noises in his head and stuff. So he was showing clear signs of having a psychotic episode. Okay. So what happened was his older brother then did section him to a mental asylum. And he was sent then to Scotland. And he spent, I think, three to six months in this asylum. So then we talk about the treatment then. 
for schizophrenia in, in, the 19, in 1947. Today we haven't got the best medications for schizophrenia. There is no cure for schizophrenia. It is a manageable um, illness under medication, but these medications really didn't come out until 50s, 60s, 70s. And even then they were not great. It's even now we're still trying to make medications that can actually help with the side effects, you know, with the effects of having um, this disease. Um, so he's in this, he goes into this um, asylum in Scotland. It is full to the brim with people. You know, clearly very unwell people. It is freezing cold. It, Scotland is a cold place at the best of times, but in the winter it's cold. So he's in there, and then some of his therapies were, you know, this is shocking. But don't let, before I say it, let's think about the treatments in them days. We didn't know what we know today. Okay, so even though they seem horrific. In them days, they thought they were doing the best for their patients. So, the first things that would happen um, with William's treatment, the treatments that William had, was um, shock therapy. And so, you would shock the brain, and, and they would. They was hoping that by shocking um, that there was different forms of shocking um, the brain, that he, that the brain would restart. Okay, so if you restart, your brain's reset, and off you go, you're, you're normal. Plus then they would use um, hydrotherapy. So hydrotherapy, in them days, was where you were placed in baths and covered, so you couldn't get out for long periods of time in very hot water, all right? Very, very hot water. Then you would be removed from that hot bath people because you're strapped in you can't get out into a cold bath right freezing cold bath because they're hoping then again to shock the body into something happening so that in itself is quite a traumatic um, experience to have as well as then the shock therapy but then they also did um, the insulin therapy so the insulin is where they would place give the person a large dose of insulin to place them into a coma all right. So in the hope that when they brought them out of this coma, again, the brain had reset itself and um, you'd be cured. Well, none of them would have cured schizophrenia as we know today. But it, it was torture for these people. And so after about, I think, six months, William's mother came and took him home from there. He'd survived it, he'd got over it, but by this stage, he has already been raped. He spent time in the army. He's now spent time in a um, institution for the, criminal, uh, for the insane. He's had all these treatments done, and now he's back at home explaining, explain, you know, he's just, he's, he's, his whole character has now changed. Right, so he is now more um, uh, behaviour is coming becoming so abnormal, so noticeable that I think he and his family have probably decided the best thing for him to do is to move away.
So what he does, he moves first to um, Canada on his own and then um, on to Australia. So he arrives in Australia, I think 58, I think, and he, he arrives in Australia. First he was in um, South Australia and what happened in South Australia was that he again was going into men's toilets. He was again then trying to, you know, touch the men and he did touch the penis of a police officer. Therefore he was arrested and he was then um, charged and um, went to prison for about 18 months. He probably served about a year, I think. Then after he came out of South Australia, he moved to Ballarat, which is in Victoria, where he done different things there, worked on building sites. But every time where he worked or where he went, people couldn't understand this behaviour he was asserting. They just couldn't understand it. And so there again, he was bullied and he was persecuted. He was laughed at, you know, he was called gay. He was called the things he was called. So again, he continued then to move, probably with a few more identities, but he would then move and he ended up then going to Brisbane. And this is where the first murder happened in Brisbane. So um, he was known to drink. Again, it's a well-known thing that people with mental health use alcohol or drugs or whatever else to help control that, to, to, to self-medicate, I, I suppose you could call it. So with William, he was a drinker and he used to frequent bars and different things like, like that. He was also in rooms, uh, in, in a house and, 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 and had rented a room in Brisbane. And one night when he was out, he met a man who was homeless, um, all his victims actually were homeless, um, all drinkers, you know, all looking for something and not that that means anything and not that they was gay or homosexual in any way, but they were just unfortunate victims who met the wrong person. So William goes to this bar, he meets this man and takes him back to his room because they're drunk. Come back to mine. I think sherry was his uh, choice of drink at the time. He brought a bottle of sherry. He took the man back to his home. He um, subsequently strangled him. He strangled him. So then he thinks, oh, because he's paranoid, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to leave. So he's done this crime this man has been found but because in them days again when we look at post-mortems and stuff we do now because he was strangled and he was a drunk and he was homeless people put it down or, or the coroner put it down to uh, natural causes right so he'd got away with that but by this time it's in his mind I'm going to get caught they're going to you know they know he moves to Sydney so he's in Sydney, he's, he's brought himself or, met, or got a little shop that he does there. He's always worked, even though he's, he's had multiple jobs. This time he's on his own. He's brought this shop, renting this shop. He is um, working and earning money. <clears throat> so 
He's moved to Sydney, sets himself up. Now, Sydney at the time in the 60s, as it is today, very vibrant city, you know, lovely city, Sydney. And it was in them days. And he lived for a few months and stuff in Sydney um, quite happily. But then these voices and stuff started coming back. And he would again frequent the bars, get drunk, meet people, even meet people in a park or whatever, drink, you know, socialise. Not, it's not known if he actually had any sexual encounters with anyone um, personally at that time. Um, I think he used to like to try and maybe just the, the feel of, of being a homosexual. He felt that was, that was him. But the actual um, act... I don't think he ever done the sexual act and none of his crimes were in that way sexually motivated at all. There was no sex or, or anything involved in his crimes. So, in 1961, something has changed, right? He's on his own now, so he's left England, he's left all his family behind. He's got this shop that he's running, so he does see people in the day, but he's lonely, I think. Plus, as well, it could be the stress and stuff and his um, unmedicated mental health. Um, it's driving him mad now. So one night he goes out, he's had a drink and he comes and he sits in the park. And there's a homeless man there and they start drinking and um, just general chatting. And he gets out another bottle of sherry and by this stage... This gentleman is now so intoxicated, he doesn't know what he's doing. So what I think he didn't know was in the carrier bag that William would carry with him, he had the trench coat, like a waterproof jacket. He had a knife and he stabbed that man, I think over 30 odd times. So that wasn't enough for him at that point. Then... He mutilated that man by cutting off his genitals, okay, and chucking him in the harbour. So that's his first murder in Sydney. A very gruesome murder. Sydney at that stage had never seen anything like it. He was terrorising the city, it was in every paper. They knew this one wasn't a murder, but there was no link now between this murder and the ones in Brisbane anyway because this one, they'd already concluded that this man had died of natural causes. This one, there was no way. It was a clear murder. So they're looking for this man. Society is worried. He goes into a bar a few months later, or a few weeks later, sorry, and he meets somebody else, another gentleman, and they start drinking the sherry, and they're intoxicated, or he, the other, the man, the, the victim is intoxicated. They start chatting and then he finds out the man's homeless. Do you need someone to stay? You can come and stay with me. And as they start walking away, down an alleyway, dark alleyway in the middle of uh, Sydney, again, all of a sudden, out comes the knife and he continues to stab this man about 47 times. Again, mutilating him, cutting off his genitals. This time I think he takes them genitals home. Don't know why. 
And then I think the day after, or the two days after that, he chucked the genitals in the, uh, the harbour. So now you've got Sydney is, is, is manic, really, because they know there's now a killer around. The police are now looking. They've got no evidence at all. Because you have a victim that was homeless, they would meet a lot of people. Not many people, you would, a lot of us walk by, we're not noticing what's going on around us. And this was the same in Sydney. Again, vibrant, busy city, even in the 60s. You know, you had um, dead bodies turning up of homeless people with really no evidence at all. Didn't have DNA, you didn't have anything like that. And, um, you know, he was mutilated. And this was now hitting the papers and it was a shocking crime. And it still is a shocking crime even today. So then a couple of weeks go by again and he meets somebody else, another gentleman. Again, same circumstances, same MO as the, the, the first two that he had mutilated. And again, he um, befriends him, gets him drunk on the sherry says you can come and stay at mine, and on the way home again, then he murders him again. Same MO, stabbing, cutting off the genitals, um, chucking him in the harbour. So then, I think a couple of weeks after that one, he did meet a man in the park, and he was chatting with the man in the park, and again, they used to sit and chat in parks, because these people are homeless. So he was frequenting places that he could find victims that were vulnerable. Okay, he was going to bars knowing that people that drink or would drink a lot would be in that bar. So he would home in on who he thought he could, one, get drunk so he could control them because he was only a small, meek man. And then you have on the other side, this underneath this rage and this, you know, in his head telling him to kill people. So he's, this, this is now his fourth potential victim okay so he's met this man in the park again with his bottle of sherry and he sat down the chain the man is now so intoxicated that he has collapsed on the floor again William then takes out his uh, waterproof jacket out the knife gets on top of him with the knife up to him and doesn't do it because he said that the voices in his head have said, don't do that to him. He doesn't need to die. So he got off of him. He put his knife in his carrier bag. He put his trench coat or the raincoat in his, his carrier bag and he walked home. That man is probably the luckiest man that was alive at that time because I don't even think William McDonald realizes why he let him go, but he did. Unfortunately, that wasn't the same for the next victim. His final victim was um, a gentleman, same circumstances again. Okay, he's drunk, he's met him in a bar. He now, though, has a shop with a flat above it with him on his own. So now, as he is homing his I suppose, killing skills, he's done now four free. Of, of these mutilations, he's now on to his fourth. He's getting quite good at it. He's getting quite confident at it. You know, he's now got somewhere they can take this victim. He can take his time with this victim. There's no rush, no one's gonna disturb him. He, he's doing it. So he's met this man 
and he has um, took him up to his flat again got the drink out a lot more drink than that they would usually have because now this is his place a lot more drink and this man is literally nearly comatose through drink I think that's the only way you can say it he's had that much so again William um, doesn't bother this time to put the raincoat on he doesn't need to this is his property he hasn't got a hide he hasn't got a run he hasn't got to try and do them sort of things he's in his environment now you're you've come into his environment and he's going to take his time so he frenziedly attacks this gentleman with the knife i think over 50 stab wounds were found in this gentleman again halfway through though that stabbing his knife was blunt and he was finding it more difficult to stab all right so he goes downstairs to his shop and he picks up another knife comes back up and stabs and stabs and stabs again again cutting the genitals off putting them to the side but because he's had a lot to drink because this man took a lot of drink to get drunk William was also drunk and exhausted because to stab someone that many times the energy that takes it, it literally knocks him out so this man is laying there dead bleeding everywhere blood everywhere seeping through there was that much blood one of the stab wounds that had been done plus having his genitals cut off created a lot of blood now don't forget William's never really had to clean up this blood he's usually just left the scene and gone this time he's exhausted and he falls asleep so he doesn't clean up the crime site straight away he falls asleep and the next morning wakes up to this body cut to pieces blood everywhere now congealed blood everywhere dripping through dripping through floorboards to the downstairs shop he panics he doesn't know what to do so he drags the body down outside to the crawl space underneath the shops now <laughs> sydney australia is hot i've lived there i know so but sydney can be very hot very hot so now you took this body and you have crawled under a crawl space about i suppose you know two foot maybe high put him under there put him up against a post under the that this this shops and, and these um this flat you put his genitals by the side of him the man is still wearing the t-shirt or the vest top and you can see the multiple stab wounds in the vest top okay and then he's tried his best then to go back in and clean up this mess but really couldn't there was that much blood he couldn't do it so what does William McDonald do what William McDonald usually done when things became on top of him when he had to either change identity or try something else he leaves so he locks up his shop and he leaves and I think he goes back to Brisbane because you know Brisbane's where he's safe because the first murder was was um, said to be natural causes so there he thinks he's safe so what happens is he is then 
in Brisbane, living life. His shop is closed up, no one's seen him. And all of a sudden, after a few weeks, this smell starts to come from this shop and this crawl space. So, <laughs> the neighbors, people start to complain about this terrible smell. And the police are called and they do find where the smell is coming from. They find this body of this victim, which is a clear victim. It's a few weeks old and in uh, Australian heat, you know, the body deteriorates quite a fast pace anyways. But it's still, I think, even from the clothes that the man were wearing, it's still quite clear that this was a victim of some crime. So what the police have then decided to say is, well, this is William MacDonald. He's took himself under there and killed himself. So again, no one's looking, no one's matched up. And no one's actually noticed that his genitals are down by the side of his, his leg. No one's put this together, that we have now four murders and mutilations of all homeless men. And William MacDonald is now missing, but they think that's his body there. Okay, so they take the body to the coroner and said to the coroner, this is William MacDonald. Now, don't forget, again, we don't have the testing and everything, forensic testing that we can do today, right? We're talking about in the 60s. But clearly, common sense, when you're looking at, um, you know, what a person can do to themselves to kill themselves, it's, it's not that. But anyway, they took the body to the coroner and the coroner would not say that this was a natural cause death because this is what the police were trying to say. He wouldn't put his name to that. Plus, because he did have doubts about the clothing, about the knife, that, you know, how can you stab yourself so many times? And how can you cut off the scrotum? But again, it wasn't, the police just wanted to get rid of this case. So anyway, um, about six weeks later, William, for all this time, is looking at newspapers, he's trying to find out, you know, anything about this crime because he thinks, you know, and then all of a sudden he thinks, well, there's nothing. I've got away with it. There's absolutely nothing there's not a bit of news about this man there's no, or, or anything. So he decides to go back to Sydney. So he's walking around Sydney as normal. And then someone that knew him previously said, oh my God, <laughs> you're dead. We buried you. We've had a memorial for you. And so William turns and runs. Now this gentleman went to the police station and said, listen, something's wrong. I've just seen William MacDonald and I've said to him, you're dead. We went to your memorial service and he ran off. And the police would not believe him. They just thought he was making things up. They just wouldn't believe it. As far as they were concerned, William MacDonald was dead. This case was closed. They were still then looking for this uh, serial killer, this, this, the mutilator, and which was terrorising Sydney, they never linked the two at all. But this man didn't leave it there. He went to the local press and he said, something's not right. This man is not dead. That body under that shop is not William MacDonald because I've just seen him. And when I questioned him, he ran. He ran off. So that was how 
they started to put this case together. Really, because of one man, if it had been left to the police at that time, this case would never have been solved, or it would have been, but much later on, and William would have done a lot more murders than he had done. So, this is why you'll hear a little bit about the corpse, you know, the walking corpse and that, because this relates to that case. So, William is then arrested, and on arrest, he is this meek and mild man, quite slender build, and he is um, quite personable, really, you know. And he tells the police everything, even about the case, the first murder he did in Brisbane, which they classed as natural causes. So he admitted to everything. So now let's go on to the court. So don't forget, we've said that this is now 1963. You're in Sydney. This city has been... Um, terrorised people were frightened it isn't like today where we see a lot of crimes we have lots of things including YouTube that you can look at different things on in them days the newspapers were what you saw you know and so when these were released and these photos were released and these killings were released even the homeless were worried about being murdered by this person you know, he actually terrorised this city so we've now took this man to court all right, and it's obvious that there is something wrong with this man other than just being a serial killer. All right, so um, in the cult, you had people fainting in the cult, you know, women fainting. It's, it's, it's horrific. You see these photos of mutilated bodies, it, it's horrific, it's a horrific crime. So the jury then was asked to, and he was charged with, with, with for murder because he admitted it and also because he had planned it, hidden bodies and, and done everything he has to do to be charged with a murder charge. But I think you've got to look at the defences for someone like William MacDonald in a murder charge. So he had a, a good defence team that did try different things, but you know, they tried, I think, um, diminished responsibility that would have reduced his charges from murder down, but that was never going to happen. And then they probably went for um, criminally, criminally insane, so insanity, uh, again, charged. But again, that wasn't accepted, even though there was three psychiatrists that gave evidence for, on behalf of, William MacDonald to say that he was mentally ill, right? And he wouldn't have been in the capacity to understand and know his actions, that sort of thing. But in, in that day and age, and, and I think Sydney wanted justice, you know, he was put into a, um, he was charged and with murder and um, he was found guilty of murder and was given a life imprisonment. He went to prison, a normal mainstream prison, um, uh, and he was um, put into a cell with somebody else, right? So you're talking about a personality that one has a mental health issue Two doesn't like human contact. He doesn't like that interaction. He can't handle that interaction. And then he tried to strangle that prisoner as well. Okay, so then he had to be moved and he was then spent the rest of his life in, uh, in solitude, really. But for William MacDonald, that's what he wanted. Okay, he, wants, he, he craved that sort of thing. He didn't crave 
what we would want to have that human interaction. He couldn't handle that. So his charges, his, 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 he, he was still kept there and um, looked after, actually, I think, quite well. And I suppose as we um, then come through the years and we look at how the medications for mental health and, you know, he had doctors there and staff and psychiatrists that he saw regularly would have helped him to cope with these feelings. So with, um, with, with him, you know, this early diagnosis of schizophrenia, uh, the trial and all this sort of stuff that build, would build up, I suppose, uh, you know, in him, by the time he got to this solitary life in prison, I think he actually felt quite, quite normal. He could deal with that. That was a quiet life for him. And that, so I think when he was in his treatment in prison, he was asked about um, why he did it. And he said, um, he, he, he wanted, the voices in his head were telling him that the, um, the corporal that did this to him, this rape, needed to feel what it was like to lose his sex in the same way. So this is sort of his words, okay? His sex in the same way. Because to William, that corporal ruined his life, his entire life. So he put all this down to that one instant, not to be in mental health, not to be in the treatment he got from mental health, not from his upbringing, but from a single incident of rape, which changed his life forever. Okay, so he said that forever. He also says, there is something inside me. It's inbuilt. And it's something that can't be changed. So he was quite honest about what he was saying how he felt and about these voices in his head that were telling him to kill these people, murder these people and in some instances telling him not to. Maybe they didn't remind him of this incident. You know there's a lot, there is a lot, there is a, a, a lot with this case and, and, and a lot usually with, with um, other cases of murder like this where especially the older murders where Today, we would probably try him as criminally insane. He would go into, in this country, Broadmoor um, for the rest of his natural life. Because there is no, and I'm not saying that this man could be in any way released. There is no way. And I think that's probably why the diminished responsibility didn't work. They didn't want them charges dropped down to a lesser charge. They didn't want him to be classed as insane because, you know, of course, I suppose the intention, the plan and and the planning that was done in it. So they didn't really recognise mental health in them days as, a, as an excuse or a defence for murder. These days, I think we would look at it a little bit different than that. So William MacDonald, he was the oldest and longest serving Australian prisoner. He served 54 years. Um, it's quite a sad case, this one, than you think, really, because throughout his whole life, he was alone. And he died alone, really. But for his victims, 
they didn't rape him. They didn't do anything to him. But the mind plays tricks. The mind is, is a funny thing, isn't it? So we have a distorted mind anyway. Then we put the um, act of rape against that. So the mind is then distorted more. Then the homosexual tendencies that he displayed this behaviour that made people feel that and wanted to humiliate him, embarrass him, call him names. Uh, I think for him it was a torturous life. And I think the best outcome, and I think he thinks the best outcome for him, was to spend that time in prison. So, this is the case um, of William MacDonald. So, I hope you found this case interesting. You can find more information online if you wish, but I, I, it's a very interesting case. It's an older case, but a very interesting case. So, we get to the bit where I have to say <laughs> about, um, please subscribe, put a thumbs up, leave us some comments if you want to talk more about this case, if you have anything you want to ask about this case. And um, so thank you for watching. And until the next time, bye-bye.